Often I like to read in history things that have taken place, and I came across a statement made by someone who's identified as the greatest preacher in history after the apostles. His name was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. C.H. Spurgeon was a Baptist pastor in England for many years and preached mostly in the 1800s. This is one of his statements, and it so fits who we are today and what we're attempting to accomplish with our series on grace. Listen to what he says. If you take Christ out of Christianity, Christianity is dead. If you take grace out of the gospel, the gospel is gone. And then this is the instruction he gives to pastors. He says, so if the people do not like the doctrine of grace, just give them all the more of it. So here we are in round three of grace. Two weeks ago, Alan opened it up, explaining to us a definition of grace, that it, it is God's unmerited favor that comes to us. And he talked about how it stands alone. And then last week, he focused in on that bullseye of the sinner, you and me. That's who Christ came for. That's the ones to whom grace is bestowed. Now this week what we're going to do is do a little bit of a reverse and pick up some thoughts out of that first message and go deeper into the whole issue of grace. I had a dream one night. I thought it was a great dream. It was a dream that I was perfect. That's not hard to imagine, is it? I mean, I was a perfect son of God, a perfect father, a perfect husband, a perfect grandfather, a perfect pastor. And then I woke up, and I realized that it had all been an illusion of perfection. Unfortunately, every one of us walk around, to some extent, with an illusion of our own perfection. There's the fictitious story of the man who goes to the doctor, and they both happen to attend the same church. And he walks in and he says, I've had a headache now for several weeks. I just can't get rid of the headache. I don't know what the problem is. And the doctor, being a very compassionate man, said, well, let me ask you a few questions. He said, have you been under a lot of stress lately? He said, oh, no, no, no. I, I don't ever come under stress. I, I walk in the spirit. I am perfect in that area. I have no stress in my life whatsoever. He said, oh. He said, well, I know a few weeks ago when we served, we were serving the poor and I didn't see you involved in that. Was that a problem for you? He said, oh, no, no, I give, I, I tithe, I give gifts, I pray for the poor. I mean, I do this perfectly. And the doctor said, oh, okay. He said, you know, I think I might know what your problem is. He said, really, what? He said, your halo's on too tight. <laughs> All of us, at some point in our lives, are wearing a halo. Because we think more of ourselves than we should. Now, even if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you can believe that you're a good person, that you're doing good things. And we who are followers of Christ should also believe that there are times when we're doing good things and we're a good person. The danger comes when you believe that in order to have that grace of God, it's a prerequisite to do good things. 
It's a prerequisite to, to be holy in certain areas. Some of you grew up in environments where you were actually taught that, that without this particular activity in your life, without this discipline, that you weren't going to be holy enough. You had to keep trying, keep trying. I mean, I grew up like that outside of the church. I grew up with a work ethic that said, if you ever want to accomplish anything, you're going to have to work for it. You're going to have to get out there and make it happen. So you become a follower in Christ, and what happens? You bring that philosophy with you. You start thinking, okay, if I'm going to be good enough for God, there's certain things that I have to do, certain ways that I have to live. I, I need to be righteous. And then we dip into what we call self-righteousness. Let me give you six points of self-righteousness. And I know I have experienced these as an unbeliever and even as a believer because it's a wrestling match to get it right. Grace is free. Nothing else is needed. Here's what happens with self-righteousness. You walk according to your own desire. There is a scripture that says there is a way that seems right unto a man, and that is the way of death. You can turn that around and say there is a way that seems wrong unto man, and that's the way to life. Following Jesus Christ doesn't make a lot of sense to people. But it's true that his grace is sufficient. My righteousness is never going to be good enough. Secondly, you worship yourself and you become the object of your own adoration. You know, you, you take that Mac Davis song, Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble because I'm perfect in every way, and you actually believe it. The third thing, you sing hymns to yourself and you say, Surely I will enter heaven my way. Because other people have told you there's a certain way that you get into heaven. Let's clear that up right now. There's only one name under heaven and earth whereby people can be saved, and that's the name of Jesus. Jesus is the way into eternal life. It's his righteousness, not ours, that gains us access to the Father and to eternity. Fourth, you practice religion in the place of walking in the Spirit. You, you come to church, you act like a Christian. You give, you pray, and you go out, and the other six days, you live like a non-Christian. I'm not saying you, I'm doing a generic thought of anyone who is self-righteous. This is how they live. But it seeps into our Christian faith. It seeps into those of us who are following him, to the point that we begin to believe that, well, maybe there's something more I could do to impress God. Maybe there's something more that will make God love me more. Maybe there's something I've done that's going to make God love me less. No. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. That's because it's his righteousness, not our self-righteousness. You do not look at what the gospel is, but at what you want it to be. How many times have I heard preachers in churches, preachers online, blogs of people who have taken this pure gospel and they've twisted it to make it mean something they need it to mean, but it's not the truth. It's not what is set down in scripture. Grace by itself is sufficient. 
But those who live as self-righteous are afraid of the gospel. Do you know why? Because it exposes your self-deceit. Unbelievers, and I was one, lie to themselves about how good they are. And then we don't believe we're good enough to enter into the kingdom of God because we don't understand who Christ is and what he's accomplished. But when our hearts and our eyes are open and we see it, we still struggle because we say we're not worthy of it. And God says, you're right. You're not worthy. Your worth has nothing to do with God's grace. It's just grace that saves you. It has nothing to do with your merits. You see, Jesus came to wash away stains, not to speak well of the spotless. Have you ever been in a church or known people that you talk to them and you say, well, we'd like to go to that church. And they say, well, you can't come to the church. You don't have the right kind of clothes on. You're not dressed right. Your hair is too long, fellow. There I'm pointing to a guy with no hair. Uh, you know, you can't have facial hair and piercings and, and tattoos. My goodness, what will happen if you come to that church? I remember my good friend Joseph Jennings, African-American guy that I worked with for 27 years, invited him to our church in Rochester once. He came to preach. Now, he was a wild man. He was a former gangster, shot 13 times, still had three bullets in him. And he went and he talked to youth about gangs and how to get out of them. And so he's up there before my congregation, which was a very conservative, mostly white-collar group of people working at GM and Chrysler. And, and there they are. And he said, some of you say that I got this tattoo and that I can't have tats because that's not biblical. He said, let me tell you something. The Bible says that when you see him coming... Written on his thigh is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He said, the boy's got a tat. <laughs> I'm over there just melting. Oh, I'm done here. It's over. <laughs> but aren't there people that tell you that? They say there's a certain way you have to behave before you accept it. If that's the case, we're empty here. None of us qualify. Now, all of that happens... Even in the beginning, the Apostle Paul had gone throughout a region called Galatia where many churches were in existence, some of which he helped start. And he's writing a letter to them because everything I just said to you was taking place in the church. They had moved away from the free offer of the gospel, from the grace of God being poured down upon people, and they had begun to think a different way. They wanted to add something to what they believed was necessary to be followers of Christ. Paul writes a letter to them. We call it Galatians. In the first two chapters, he's chiding them for having moved away from what he and others had been preaching there, the true gospel of Jesus Christ. When he comes to chapter 3, you can feel his pain. Look what he says in the first three verses of chapter 3. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means 
of the flesh. Wow. He's upset because he's calling them fools. Now, this word foolish is very unique because it has a deeper meaning to it. It means that you've stopped thinking, you're thoughtless, you're heartless, you've lost your moral affections. What does that mean? It means that I no longer have a desire for morality, for, for properness, for rightness. I want to follow the ways of the world. I want to think like they think and act like they act so I can be accepted by them instead of following that narrow road that Jesus Christ sets out. So the Galatian churches had lost their, their moral affection. They no longer believed in absolute truth. We live in a society, the majority of whom do not believe in the absolutes of Scripture. And they will say that. We absolutely do not believe that there are absolutes. And they say it about Scripture. But we know that it's true. We know that every word in the Bible, God breathed in through men of old who were led by the Holy Spirit. So we hold on to these truths. We know that they're real. But Paul said, you've lost it somewhere. You're foolish. How could you do that? You know, I never had it when I was growing up. It wasn't until I was much older that I had a heart attack, not a physical heart attack, a spiritual heart attack, an attack of God on my heart, where God said, look, I've got grace here, and I'm going to put it on you whether you like it or not. I'm going to open your heart. I'm going to pour grace into it because I have a plan for your life. It's much better than the plan you have or the one you've been living. That grace came to me as, as a shock because, again, I thought I had to work for it, but God provided it. That issue has been on the surface for hundreds of years. Back in the 1500s, the then church had become so inundated with works righteousness that grace was losing its flavor. Even the word itself was disappearing. And the disciplines that follow grace were going away. That's one of the reasons that Martin Luther wanted to debate the issue of grace. Because he found that it is by faith that we are saved. And he knew that faith was a product of God's grace. And so he tacked it up on the Wittenberg door on October 31st. And the Reformation was born. The reforming of our thinking. The reforming of the church bringing it back to its biblical standard. There were five things that were addressed during the period of the Reformation, the five best things to come out of it, and they're called the solas, sola meaning only. Here they are. You have grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Now let me walk you through those. These are so essential to understand. They have affected the church ever since they were gathered together in this thought process during the Reformation. It is grace by God alone that he, for whatever reasons he has, chose you and chose me. It's just his grace. I did nothing to deserve it, nothing to warrant it, didn't even pray for it. But that grace, the first thing that grace did was it planted in my heart faith. 
so that by grace alone and faith alone, faith in what? Not in me, but faith, the object of which is Jesus Christ alone, pointed me toward Christ. So God came to me, showed his grace, built my faith, showed me Jesus, and then he said, now go to the scriptures where I tell you about faith and life and salvation. This is where you're going to find my grace displayed through the lives of other people. And for what reason? For his glory alone. You see, I had to wrestle with the fact, I'm not God, he is. His plan is better than my plan. And as a brand new believer, I had this great faith, and God has built that faith ever since. And I do have a great faith in him. It's a faith that he gave me, but now it's a faith that I build through the years. And my faith tells me I wouldn't have any faith if I thought I gained grace by my works. It's not your works that get you God's love or God's grace. And in like manner, God doesn't hate you or despise you or punish you because when you do something wrong, that punishment was placed upon Jesus Christ on the cross. You're forgiven if you yielded to his movement of grace. Paul said, that's not what's happened in this church in Galatia. Somewhere along the line, someone has bewitched you. Now, there are a few of you in here old enough to remember bewitched. Do you remember that? Yeah, and uh, it was Elizabeth Montgomery in 1964 through the early 70s where she'd do her nose and things would happen. You know, that, that's fantasy. Let me, just so that you understand, that wasn't real, okay? <laughs> but bewitched is a real word that means fantasy and superstition. Somehow, a group had come into the churches in Galatia and had moved the people's eyes off of Christ on to this new concept, this new fantastic thing that was happening. And it was superstition. It wasn't real. People are superstitious. They still are today. We just passed Friday the 13th, remember? How many of you had a problem with it? Don't go there. That's superstition. It's not real. It's fantasy. It's bewitched. Well, this superstition still exists today. Linda and I were in Moldova this summer. It was uh, between 97 and 105 in the churches. Uh, we were able to sleep in air conditioning, but we worked in perspiration. And it was, it was terrible. It was very, very hot. I had a towel up there, and these were my gestures, you know, that, that, and this. That was it. It's like I was sending signals to the football players. <laughs> well, we entered one church. It was about 97 degrees that day, therefore much hotter in the church. And they had the windows open on one side. And I thought, well, there's a good idea. Maybe we get some breeze. But they were closed on this side. So I went to the pastor. I said, hey, can we open the windows on this side? No. I said, why not? He said, because the minute we open those windows, the evil spirits will come in. And my thought, I didn't voice this because I'm learning to tone it down. I said, the evil spirits are already here if you believe that. They just don't want to get out. That's why you don't have the breeze. What a ridiculous superstition. You don't have to burn up here. You can open windows. You can put fans in. No, the superstition is so deeply entrenched in their thinking 
that they honestly believe it. They have been bewitched in that area. You and I fall into similar bewitchments. I mean, I thought for that church, cross ventilation would be good. Anybody get that? <laughs> Paul says, foolish relations, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ has been presented to you. Why did he say it that way? Why did he have to insert that little before your very eyes? It's because he was playing against a superstition that was existing then and continues today. How many of you have ever heard or used the term evil eye? Oh, that's the evil eye looking at you. Well, back in Paul's day, the evil eye was a common term, and to ward off an evil eye, you wore a talisman, a necklace of some sort, with an eye on it so that this eye would look at the evil eye and you didn't have to. There's a story of a woman named uh, Kayla. And Kayla and her husband are missionaries and they're serving in the east. And she knows a little bit of the language. And one day, about the third year in, they go to look at some aquariums. And while they're there, they see a glass blower and he's making these beautiful animals and he's painting on the animals the eye for protection because it's well known in those cultures that you need protection from evil. So she's in a fairly large group, but he seems to focus in on her as he's working. He looks right at her and he takes her glance and, and makes her look over at a talisman that's hanging there and he nods. She said almost religiously, he nods that that's what I need to protect me while I'm here. And she said, I knew very little of the language, but I knew how to say this. She said, I looked at him and said, I love Jesus Christ. And he looked at her for a minute and she said it again. I love Jesus Christ alone. The item that he was holding in his hand cracked in pieces and fell to the floor. She said he looked up at her and he then had fear on him. And she said it one more time. I love Jesus Christ see, there's a power over superstition. There's a power over being bewitched. There's something to protect you and to protect me to keep us from doing the things that God doesn't want us to do, from thinking that we need to add something to grace. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you have no idea what that means, other than to say this, that both you and we, who are followers, we are being tempted every single day by three things according to Scripture, the world, the flesh, the devil. I think they are put in that order for a particular reason. You see, I think the world has a plan, whether they know it or not, and that is to take our eyes off of Jesus, to put them on something else, to get them to the point where something of the world is more important. Last night, the, the best football game on was the Georgia game, because that's the only team that matters, okay? <laughs> And as they're playing Notre Dame, it's almost halftime. And I said, you know what? I got to get up really early. I got to preach tomorrow. I love the University of Georgia. I grew up 12 miles from it. I'm a bulldog inside and out, you know. And 9.15, I turned off the TV and I went to sleep. Is that a righteous act? No, it's a smart act because I knew if I got into it, I'd have to watch it till it ended. 
And then this morning I get up and I'd be mad at myself all day for having given in to that. You know, so <clears throat> I taped it. <laughs> Our VCR is wonderful. You know, you can just do this. But the world is after us. And what happens when the world comes after you, your flesh has a choice. You can choose to agree with what the world is offering, or you can choose to agree with what God is offering. I'm agreeing that the grace of God is free to me, and I want it. I want his love. I do want to serve in a way that pleases him. And I know there are times that he's not pleased with me, but he still loves me because he's a good father. I have a friend, when I ask him, uh, how you doing today, me? Hi, he says, uh, I'm a bad man with a good father. What a great answer. That's how we need to look at ourselves because the world is after us. The flesh is weak, but the spirit in me is willing. I have to learn to yield more to the spirit because underlying all of that, underlying the world and underlying the flesh is the devil. The devil is the one who comes to seek to destroy us, to kill us, and to steal from us. That's his whole purpose in existence. He's after those of us who have not yet committed, who have already committed ourselves to Christ. He wants to tear us down. The others already belong to him until they understand the grace of God and receive it. So we've got this battle that we're fighting, and it's a tough battle to be able to stand for what God tells you to do. My grace is sufficient to you. We'll talk about that next week. I have a friend who left business at the age of about 40 went to seminary and became a pastor in his first church he went to. They said, now, what we want is for you to preach to us about the good things of God. We don't want you to preach to us about sin or anything like that. So the first Sunday he got up, and he could have had the fear of man. He could have had the concerns that if I don't preach the way they want, that I'm going to be cast out of this church. But instead, he had a greater fear of God than he did of man. And so he got up and he preached a whole message against sin. Elders came to him afterwards and says, we don't ever want you preaching from that passage again. He said, not a problem. So he picked another passage next week. <laughs> he preached about sin. He did this for about three or four weeks in a row. And they said, if you keep preaching like this, you're going to empty the church. Because you're not preaching the love of God. He said, yes, I am. I'm preaching grace. A few months went by. He came to preach one Sunday morning. His audience included his wife and his two kids. And that was it. Everybody else had left the church. So he preached. He finished his message. They went home and he said, well, God, I have successfully destroyed your church because I have done what you told me to do. Is that a risk to do what God tells you to do, to take that grace that's freely given and obey him? Yeah, it's a risk because you don't know God's plan. God's plan then, that afternoon, his phone rang. A very large church in a neighboring community called him and said, didn't know anything about his situation. They said, God told us that you would be a great pastor on our staff. Could you come for an interview? He said, now or tomorrow? <laughs> he was ready. Because you see, he, he didn't let the influences bother him. You got to get over it. You got to understand God's grace is so good. He loves us so much. Every one of you in here has a call on your life. It's a call to do something that's going to benefit the kingdom of God. And, and some of those are small things. They may seem small, but not to God. 
Some of them are huge things, but that's not because the person is better than those who are doing the small things. We're all in this boat together. You need a halo check. Is your halo on too tight? Is it tilted so that you think you have to keep the halo there? Let me tell you what you really need. Listen to this very closely. A renewed vision of Christ crucified so that the illusion of your perfection will fade away in the face of the reality of his perfection. See, he's, he's perfect. You and I are not. We will never be. Now, we are called, be holy for I am holy. So we are to pursue that holiness. And I believe that in certain areas of life, you may be able to perfect some things. You may get it right, but not in all of life. But he's still working on you. And he needs you to follow that work that he's doing. Let's remember, no one comes to the Father unless the Son draws him. And no one comes to the Son unless the Holy Spirit moves him. That's why Paul says, after beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh or human effort? Once you receive God's grace that leads to faith, that leads to Christ, that's supported in Scripture for God's glory alone, once that happens in you, there's nothing you can do to improve that, but you can improve yourself in that. So God will help you to do that. The Spirit's work in me, when he came to me on that night that I went to that church and he opened and I heard and I went home and I said, I have no idea what I'm doing, but I know I'm doing the right thing. I yielded to the grace and he gave me the faith to do it. Have you yielded to his grace? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? And for those of you who have, Are you continuing to yield to his grace or are you trying to add to it? C.S. Lewis said, no man knows how bad he is till he's tried very hard to be good. We're not that good, but we have a good father, a father who loves our grace that he's given unto us. It's not works, it's just grace. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up as I give you three final points that are going to help you with grace. Three thoughts. Listen to the first one. My hope lives not because I'm not a sinner, but because I am a sinner for whom Christ died. I'll repeat it. My hope lives not because I am not a sinner, but because I am a sinner for whom Christ died. That's why my hope is strong. I know that he died for me because I'm a sinner. Secondly, My trust is not that I am holy, but that being unholy, he's my righteousness. So he is the one who is perfect, not me. And I've been accepted through his perfection into the presence of the Father. And lastly, my faith rests not upon what I am or shall be or feel or know, but in who Christ is. And what he's done, what he's now doing for me, that's where my faith rests. All you need is Jesus. Just grace. I'm going to recommend that you take your halos off. And you recognize in one another, we're not perfect, but we're saved. And if you're not saved, I'm going to pray with you right now. 
to see what God will do with that. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace. We did not merit it. We do not deserve it. And yet you have shown it. Thank you, Lord, that you have saved us and brought us into a right relationship with you. Lord, we pray for those who do not yet know you, who have not responded to your grace. And we pray that, Holy Spirit, you would move in them right now, into their hearts and minds. You would break their wills and you would say, come unto me, you who are burdened and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Lord, let them come now and pray, Jesus, come into my life. Help me to walk the walk and talk the talk. Lord, for the rest of us, help us to understand how perfect and righteous and loving and wonderful you are. Lord, we need you. You're the only one we need. So let us worship you today. In your precious name we pray. Amen.